Thanks for tuning into the Goop Podcast. Today's episode is made possible by our friends at Saqqara. There's a ton of different meal programs out there, but one that managed to tick every box is Saqqara Life's signature nutrition program. Saqqara delivers nationwide and there's no prep or cooking involved. The ready-to-eat meals are delivered right to your door and their plans are designed to work seamlessly with your lifestyle. The chef-crafted breakfasts, lunch, and dinners are made with organic, plant-based ingredients, plus they're always dairy, gluten, and refined sugar-free. For more, head to sakara.com goop to get 20% off your first order. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash goop. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is Ashley C. Ford. She's a New York Times bestselling author of Somebody's Daughter, her powerful memoir about childhood, family, love, and forgiveness. Ashley and I talk about invisibility and how girls are often conditioned to be good and silent. Ashley says that in childhood, girls learn quickly to betray themselves and that this conditioning carries over beyond puberty. We also talk about acceptance and the complex nature of familial bonds. And Ashley explains why forgiveness means accepting what's true instead of clinging to what we can't and shouldn't control. Okay, let's get to my chat with Ashley C. Ford. Really excited to have this conversation with you. And I think there's so many places we could flow into just in terms of the memoir and and all of your experiences. But, you know, as someone who's also had a very complex relationship with my own mother, I'm so interested in how it felt to write about your own mother and, and how you managed to figure out that kind of counterbalance between sharing what needed to be shared, but also figuring out how to maybe in one way or another be protective. You know, despite giving myself therapy as an 18th birthday present and pretty much being in therapy since that point, it wasn't until I was in probably my 31st year of life, maybe, that I had a therapist who said to me, Ashley, I'm not trying to get you to a place where you live in a fantasy. I'm trying to get you to a place where you can accept reality. 
because the reality is that you are more loved than you realize. The reality is that you have suffered. And the reality is that you have loved people at times, perhaps more than they deserved. She just started laying out these things and asking me to find evidence for them in my life, real moments, real, you know, memories that backed up what she was saying to me. And and that was really easy to come by. And then I realized that what I say to myself, how I speak to myself tells a very different story. And that story is of someone who is unlovable and perhaps even conniving or malicious. And that voice was the voice of like the worst of my interactions with my mother. And I didn't want to get rid of that voice. I didn't want to call that voice a liar because if I called that voice a liar, then I was calling my mama a liar. And I don't know how everybody grows up, but where I grow up, you don't call your mama a liar. And the problem was that in order to have respect enough for my child self to realize that I knew the truth, to accept that I knew the truth, I had to also accept that there were ways that my mother had lied to me. And one of those lies was that I was not allowed to tell the truth about what had happened to me and that it would be a betrayal or that it would be unloving for me to tell the truth about what I saw, what I heard, what I felt and just what happened. And I decided that I was worth more than that lie. That being able to live the rest of my life, being able to express myself truly the way I want people to see me, which is as I am, required me to be honest and not live under the lie, not live like the lie was true. And if my mom thought that was betrayal, I can't do anything about that. But I know that I define betrayal differently, and I trust myself enough now to let that be okay. Throughout the book, there's a major theme about childhood, and you write about the fact that girls or folks that identify that way are conditioned to be good and invisible. And you you kind of touched on it a little bit when we are talking about your mama, that the fact that you don't call your mother a liar, I think that's just a a perfect example of this idea of being good, even if you know that performing goodness is actually not to your own well-being. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about just that conditioning around being good and being invisible? I think that when you are raised with the conditioning of what we would generally call girlhood or a feminine experience of childhood, you are taught pretty abruptly (laughs) and pretty commonly to betray yourself and to betray how you feel, what you think is right, what you feel in your body is right or wrong. I mean, that could start with something as simple as, and you know, less, I I noticed fewer and fewer parents doing this, but in some places it's still this way. Some families, it's still this way, but like just forcing kids to hug and kiss and be affectionate with people who they don't want to hug and kiss and be affectionate with. 
you know, telling them that they can't wear certain things that they feel comfortable in and that feel good to their bodies because of what somebody else might think about it or because it doesn't fit the identity that we've decided that they're going to inhabit for the rest of their lives. You know, it's just, there's a lot of subtle teaching kids that their feelings aren't real, that their feelings don't matter. And I think, yeah, especially for people who are having that feminine experience, especially a Black feminine experience, you are taught to betray yourself all the time. One of the things that I remember from my childhood that was always so stark and that always sat with me as a thing that I knew I couldn't or I shouldn't say out loud because of how it would make my family look, even though my family didn't hesitate to do it, was that a a boy in school put his hand down my shirt and grabbed my chest. And I said, and it was at the end of the school day. So when I went home, I said something to my mom about it. And I said that I was going to go to the teacher the next day and tell them what had happened. And immediately my mom and my grandma told me not to tell on this boy because he was a little black boy. And if I told they would absolutely kick him out of school or expel him. And they were always looking for reasons to expel or kick out little black boys. And that felt like it could be true enough, but it still felt like, but what about me? Like, what about my body? What about my right not to be touched by him? You know, and I told anyway. I remember I told the teacher anyway, and I remember the teacher telling me that I did the right thing and he didn't get kicked out. He got taken out of class for a couple of days, but he didn't get expelled or kicked out of school. But quite even then, like this was middle school and a couple of his friends came up to me and were like, I can't believe you told on him. I can't believe you told. And I was like, I can't believe that anybody would think I wouldn't tell what is happening to me in this moment. But that is the expectation from an early age that there are sacrifices you have to make as a person in a body like this. And some of it, I think if you're lucky from an early age, you understand is wrong even when you perform it and you're just waiting for the chance to get to do what you want to do. But I think for a lot of people, it becomes something that not only comes at, a, at the cost of like their experience of themselves, but also then their compassion for people who do it a different way. If you have to betray that part of yourself in order to present yourself in a way that's accepted, then you have a lot less tolerance for people who aren't following the same rules. It feels inside of you, even if you don't think of it this way, like those people are getting away with something that you don't get to get away with. We'll be right back. Anyone who has tried meal prepping knows how much planning it takes to pull off a week's worth of equally healthy, creative, and delicious meals. At Sakara Life, their goal is to make it easier and enjoyable. Sakara's best-selling meal plan is called Signature Nutrition Program, which delivers ready-to-heat, chef-crafted meals straight to your door. 
Each meal from breakfast, lunch, and dinner is plant-based and packed with superfoods. The ingredients are organic and free of dairy, gluten, and refined sugar. The menu changes weekly, so there's always something different and nourishing to try, like brown rice noodles with sesame roasted carrots, zucchini muffins, scones, and pumpkin seed pesto pasta. Along with their meal program, the Saqqara shop is stocked with functional, plant-rich products and wellness essentials, including protein bars and their newest snack, the Super Seed and Nut Blends. To try it out, head to Saqqara's site. Right now, they're offering 20% off your order. Just go to saqqara.com goop. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash goop to get 20% off your first order. And now back to the conversation. I think you've spoken about to this, this need to leave your body to survive. Mm-hmm. And I'm really moved by just in, even in these first few minutes of the conversation, how much well, how to me, it seems that you are very much embodied now mm. and able to reclaim whatever separation needed to be set up or evacuation had to happen at whatever stage. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of speak a little bit about that desire to leave or that negotiation of whether your body is a safe place to be or not, especially as it relates to adolescence and puberty and development, especially Mm -hmm. as someone who also developed very early, just that negotiation of, oh, oh, my body's changing. I don't necessarily feel safe. How do I make myself safe? Potentially Mm -hmm. it's to leave, but just negotiating that leaving and to returning that disembodiment to embodiment. Yeah. I mean, because it's, there, there are so many things happening with disassociation and, and, and in those moments, at least as I've experienced and as I understand it. But, you know, the thing with disassociation and the body and especially the onset of puberty that, that I always think about is the myth of superheroes in general, because I feel like puberty in a lot of ways is like when a young superhero, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a young person. I mean, a young superhero could be a person who just, an older person who just happened to get their powers yesterday. In movies and in comic books, when superheroes have those superpowers kick in immediately, they have the worst time controlling them. It's it's painful. It's it's embarrassing. They don't want anybody to know. They they hide, you know, and somehow what ends up happening in one way or another is they find a mentor or they find someone to guide them through the understanding of how to master these gifts or burdens, however they see it. And I think that kids going through puberty are little superheroes getting their superpowers for the first time, the superpowers of their human emotions. They're figuring out how sad a person can be, how angry a person can be. They're figuring all of that out at the same time. And what they need is somebody who can say, hey, 
This is how you identify what's happening to you. And this is how you use that energy pointed in a certain direction, whatever you want from yourself, whatever you want from your life. And this is how you can use that energy instead of essentially like constantly freaking out because you don't know what's happening to you. We don't get that. <laughs> There's no real training. There's no real guidance about, in my opinion, about being intentional with identifying and processing our emotions, because in a lot of cases, our parents don't know how to identify and process their own. You know, I was just listening to an interview with Brene Brown and I think she was saying that most people can only really identify three emotions happy, mad, and sad. And like, they think that like, those are like the only emotions you can have. Now imagine having a young person in your care who is suddenly encountering their complex emotions, but all you understand is happy, mad, and sad. You can provide for them. You can make sure they have a roof over their head and food in their bellies. You can make sure that they go to school and get straight A's and you can find a way to encourage them or intimidate them or do whatever in a million different ways. You really can still be um, a good parent, I think, but there will always be that piece that's missing, that, that, that missing piece of information. It's just like they never took in school that they never knew was a subject. And that can create problems later on. So I think that when I was writing this book, I wanted to confront that. I wanted to confront the fact that you're going to have, if you don't understand what's going on inside of you, if you have this confusion when you're having like those freakouts, other people are freaking out. It's just, we're all doing it in different ways. Some people externalize, some people like me internalize. I go in to my brain, into my head. And it's, it's something that created a safe space for me for a long time. But then eventually you realize that like, I'm not really living when I'm in here. I don't really have a life I'm leading when I'm in here. And all the things I'm scared of and confused about on the outside, I'm not getting any closer to figuring those things out, understanding them any better, or being able to process them in any real way. So I'm either going to start my work today <laughs> or I'm going to put it off another day, but the work is always going to be there to do. I'm really curious about the love between yourself and your father and just how you were able to expand and contract and mold that love into something that made sense to you given the fact that he was incarcerated and there was a lot of lack of clarity around his entire existence. I think that that is such a, there's such a, a tenderness and complexity there, especially as a child, not having that visibility, but understanding that this is someone who should have unconditional love. And so as more was revealed to you, I'm, I'm really curious just around like what, what has love looked like for you in relationship mm. to him? Well, you know, I would say no matter what's happened, the issue has never really been that my love for my dad has, um, 
expanded or contracted. It has really been that at different times, I have felt differently about the fact that I love my dad. And it was way more so about accepting what was true, what already was the thing that I didn't have to manipulate to make it look any kind of way, what was right in front of me. And the truth was that there was this person in the world who made up half of my DNA and who committed a heinous crime and who had been in prison for 30 years and who I loved. All of those things were true at the same time. And every hesitation I had about accepting that had to do with something that I couldn't control and didn't really need to control. So eventually I was able to work through that hesitation in order to just, you know, accept what was already true. I love my dad. I, I, I like him. You know, we talk to each other very easily. We have a very easy rapport and I don't have to think of him differently. I don't have to lie to myself about who he is or what he's done. And I don't have to forgive him for those things because I can't forgive him for those things. You know, that's not my job. It's not even my right. I can forgive him for the ways his choices affected my life, but I can't forgive him for what he did to someone else. And I accept that. I'm okay with that. And so I just try the best I can to not make up fantasies or nightmares about what might be true and just let what is be. What is our job? What is our commitment to ourselves? I think especially as Black women, when culturally there's this idea of like the collective and what we're supposed to do for our community. But you write in the book about, and I'll just pull a direct quote. You say, my love for my family was in direct conflict with my need to be gone out away. And, you know, this idea of, of our job, like this desire to be self-reliant, to be self-actualized is in such direct opposition <laughs> with the, the culture that we're offered. Yes. And I'm interested in kind of your, your thoughts about that or kind of your experience with finding, finding space and I'm not saying balance because I don't actually believe in balance, but just me neither. <laughs> space. <laughs> yeah. Just finding space and awareness around that tension. I think that the flip side of accepting what's true is that you have to be realistic about things that you would usually catastrophize. So it doesn't just work in terms of like, you know, accepting reality. Like it doesn't just work in terms of like accepting that I love my dad. It also <laughs> has to work in terms of accepting that I have a bad attitude or accepting that things in most cases are as likely to go right as they are to go wrong. So while I might have 
three contingency plans for if something goes wrong. I really don't have any plans for when things go right. And that, it turns out, doesn't work in a life where you want to feel good and you want to feel good about your life. (laughs) When that's your goal, when you wanna feel good and you wanna feel good about your life and you can't see a clear path to that given culture, circumstance, access, whatever it is, All of a sudden, what you are called to do or what I have felt called to do is to imagine something different. If right now, the only thing I can imagine is that trying to be a good member of this family and trying to be a good steward of my own life, if I feel like those two things are in direct conflict and I can't and I I cannot imagine a way for them to work together, I have to really ask myself, is it really that I can't imagine a way for them to work together? Or is it just that I've never seen it done before? And in a lot of cases, it was the latter. I was thinking that because I had never seen something done a certain way, I had never seen somebody interact in the family a certain way. I'd never seen somebody move away and somehow still be involved and still be there for the important things. Because I'd never seen it, I couldn't or or wouldn't imagine what it would look like if I was that person and if I did have that life which means by the time it was available to me, I didn't even see it right in front of me, (laughs) you know, because I didn't even know to look for it. I didn't know what I was looking for. And I think that that has really helped me at this point in my life, not just in my writing, but in, in having like that next phase of being a person or of liking who I am, liking my life. It's really come from, allowing myself to imagine more and better than I ever had before. As someone who has survived emotional sexual trauma, has really felt that their boundaries have been violated, and as someone as well who identifies that way, I'm always trying to hear or find softness or or tenderness in, in hearing how other survivors are taking care of themselves right now. And I'd love to hear what does that look like for you right now? Taking care of myself right now, I've realized has meant not really clinging to a a myth of certainty or even of safety, but providing surroundings and environments for myself that feel comfortable, where I feel like I can, I, I am mobile in ways that make sense to me, that feel good to my body, not just meaning like living in a walkable neighborhood, but also living in a walkable neighborhood where, you know, for most of the walk, I'm not surrounded by other people or trying to have a space with a door I can close. You know, I realized as an adult, and I'm really glad that I got to have this realization that what I had been denied and did not feel worthy of was the space 
to fully be myself, to have things, to want things, not because they were expensive or because I am owed them or anything like that, but because I'm worthy of everything and anything and, and the best that this world has to offer. And that has always been true, whether or not it was my reality. And as I accept that more and more, as I allow my imagination to take me to places that I never thought I could go and help me accomplish things I never thought I could accomplish, I'm caring for myself. You know, I'm taking care of not just the child Ashley who just really wants an adult who will be on her side and stick up for her, but also future Ashley who really cares about Ashley, the Ashley who's living her life right now and wants her to make the decisions that allow them both to grow as much as possible. That's what I want and and that's what I'm getting. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a constant battle. I think that self-care is a thing that doesn't really stop. I think it's got to be less of a thing we think of as optional and more of a thing that we think of as necessary because it is. We just don't have great models for it all the time. Yeah, it, it is, especially for, for Black women, Black people. Yes. I often will say that self-care is a prescription when you think about just what the chronic exposure to, to racism, to, yes. especially if you are in a feminized form, to misogyny, it's all these things are there. And so you have to sometimes be really aggressive, actually. Yeah. About and let that be okay. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, and I think definitely over the past two years, there has been a very deep reckoning for me around understanding that that there actually is power in aggression, Mm -hmm. depending on the environment and 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 the context. And I've really been trying to make make contact with this idea of soft power yes. and, and really getting comfortable with soft power and getting comfortable with other people's discomfort. I'm really curious yes. for you, especially in writing this book and just in the work that you're doing in your life, if you also are negotiating this idea of soft power or trying to find a more comfortable relationship with aggression, with anger, in a way that has efficacy, in a way that can be mobilized and supportive. Well, yeah, you know, I I actually, up until I went to college, my school systems were predominantly Black, more than any other race in the school system. So it wasn't until I went to college that I started being very aware of the way in some ways, it was expected that you would negotiate how you presented yourself in spaces that were primarily white. And I knew that that was true. You know, like I definitely grew up in a house where it was like there was certain stuff you didn't say in front of white people. It was certain stuff you didn't do in front of white people, even though we primarily lived around black people and we knew those things. But It wasn't until I was in college that that was, you know, a part of my daily life. I had never had a daily life where I was not in the majority race-wise until that point. 
Now, I believe that that is what helped me not just understand, but deeply get in contact with my anger. And that was for a lot of reasons. Not only was I in a predominantly white educational institution for the first time, but I was learning more about the history of oppression and American aggression in like in real time. I'm finding out about all of these things. I'm also dealing with microaggressions at a level that I had never previously dealt dealt with in my entire life. You know, I'm in classes where the idea of privilege is coming up and I'm learning about it for the first time as well in college. And I'm watching half the white people in the class have total meltdowns when we talk about the concept of privilege. And I'm like, did they not see what I like? Like, oh, they don't see this stuff. Like they didn't know. I didn't know that they didn't know until that point. That was wild and, and, and terrifying, to be honest. And, you know, through more reading, through more research, discussions, understanding, my anger toward not just my experience, but the experience of my mother and my grand, like so many people in my life just became more and more toxic because I didn't know what to do with that anger because I'd never really been allowed to have it before. I didn't know where to put it or like what direction to point it in. And it really helped me to realize or to be taught eventually that anger and aggression identifies passion points. And that when I was getting that angry, when I was getting that upset in that unfamiliar way, it was my emotional system trying to tell me this is something you really care about. You sense injustice here. You sense somebody being wrong here. And this is something that you really, really care about. So what are you going to do with your feelings about this? What are you going to do with all this anger? What, is, what direction are you going to point it in? What is your intention for this anger? And then I could name an intention for that anger and I could do something with it. And that has really helped me, you know, in my idea of how to express aggression, how to use the power and influence that I wield in certain spaces because I don't know that soft power is very important to me. This is just the way I do things. This is just the way I communicate. But I will say when I need to communicate differently because this version of my voice doesn't properly get my message across, it's very easy for me to switch it up and let somebody know very quickly that I'm still not the one. And that kindness is always a choice. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ashley C. Ford. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, Somebody's Daughter. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.